Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 40. We were treated very much like guests and not at all like people that were actually being kidnapped, even though technically that's what you could call it. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to The Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. My goal is to share with you stories, knowledge, and inspiration as we continue on the journey together, searching for that secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, your host, and today is Monday, so we have another amazing interview. If you guys have been listening to the show, you know that we come out with episodes every Monday and Friday, and Mondays we have super fun interviews with successful individuals from all different aspects, whether it's athletics, business, health and fitness, um, pretty much everything. And then on our Fridays, we we have our Friday Fire, where we kind of dive deep into one topic, subject, or tip of the day. But being that today is Monday, we get to um, jump into this incredible interview that I just had with a longtime friend of mine and expedition leader, Ben Stokesbury. Ben is a National Geographic Adventurer, Hero of the Year. He has also been named by Men's Journal, uh, one of the top 25 most adventurous men. Uh, He has done so many expeditions and first ascents from around the world. Ben has also documented and filmed all of his expeditions and he has a flurry of different uh, videos out there which I will list in the show notes. But today we also get to talk about his expedition to the Rio Alguarez in Colombia and we talk about uh, the trip, what happened, uh, kind of the political environment there and how he was held a little bit from the, from the locals, but also the lessons learned um, from that whole experience and how he looks to return as well uh, with more knowledge, more preparation. Anyway, there's all sorts of nuggets of gold in this uh, interview, and I think you guys are really going to love it. Ben is definitely one of the most adventurous Uh, people that I've ever personally met, and he has stories that could last a lifetime. So I think you guys are going to love this. Let's wait no longer and go ahead and jump right into it. Here is Ben Stokesbury. First off, Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining me. You're just a legend in so many aspects of life, but definitely within the sport of kayaking, and we're stoked to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Nick. Um, so Ben, you have, you've got all sorts of titles to your name. You've been named National Geographic, uh, Adventurer of the Year, uh, maybe Hero of the Year, Men's Journal, Top 25 Most Adventurous Men. Uh, you've traveled the world, you've checked off, you know, first descents all over the place in different rivers, canyons, um, and waterfalls. And I don't even think I could name all the different countries, uh, that you've, you've, you know, listed first descents on. And as well as you've made so many different videos, um, like the river of doubt, which I was stoked to, to be a part of with you. Uh, you've done 
uh, Qdoba, Walled In. I'm, I'm not even certain how many videos you've made over the years, but a lot. Uh, so if you guys haven't checked out Ben's videos, definitely go check them out. They're always amazing. Um, but you were recently in Colombia, which is what I wanted to talk with you about on another expedition uh, in your movie, The Return to El Guayas. Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about why that river and kind of what happened and the story behind it? Well, first of all, it was uh, the first time that I had been on an expedition with our mutual friend Rafa Ortiz in 10 years or so since uh, a big mission on the Presidio in northern Mexico. So it's, it was so amazing to be able to to join back together with him and of course he's a he's a veteran of, of many kayaking expeditions and um brings uh brings his his past in in mexico city and his his uh panache for for traveling and for for operating on a level that only rafa operates on and so that was a pretty amazing opportunity to uh to get him on the mission and so this this particular trip was four or five years in the making in boating with lane jacobs and going to columbia with him over and over he's a person that has been in our sport um, i remember him as uh an excellent high-end paddler right when i was getting into the sport back in the late 90s he was think he was at world class at that time he's been paddling for a very long time and I didn't really know prior to this but he was actually one of the instigators for so many missions that he and Rush and Tyler had done especially in Africa he's a guy that spends a lot of time on Google Earth spends a lot of time pouring over topo maps um, and is just really interested in the actual geographic location, the geology of these places, the hydrology. And so he he'd, uh, zeroed in on some rivers in Colombia, starting with a river called the, the Margua up in northern Colombia that previously had been off limits due to the civil conflict that was occurring there. And as of about, well, really about 2012, uh, the country was progressively getting more and more safe and so when I went back with him in, in 2015, all of a sudden there was this whole corner of one of the most uh, hydrologically endowed, one of the places that has the most flowing freshwater on earth that had just opened up to outsiders for the very first time. And uh, what we found there was just mind-blowing. Like a, a canyon that was almost twice as deep as the Grand Canyon, um, beautiful river, uh, we met up with a French paddler by the name of Jules Domine that had landed in Colombia in 2012 and basically had just decided not to leave and made his life exploring Colombian rivers, taking people down the river, being a Colombian river guide. And so that was a really eye-opening experience because I had gone to Colombia in my early days of expedition kayaking in the early 2000s. And over the course of three or four trips, I got pretty frustrated in that there just weren't a whole lot of places that you could actually go safely. And so I turned my attention to other places, Asia, certainly further south into Argentina, um, and uh, 
yeah, once, once I came back in 2015, it was amazing to see the, the progress politically that the place had made, but also so amazing to see this portion of the country that I had kind of only dreamed of in those early years. And over the course of three or four years, that led to us getting to, to a river, a big tributary to the Amazon. And, and in terms of this political strife or this civil conflict that's occurred with um, guerrilla groups, sort of the last areas of the country to become safe enough for, for foreigners to travel, become safe enough to, to explore rivers, was this area of the Amazon front that's in the south central portion of the country. And so that's exactly where this Rio Guayas is situated. And the, the, I think <laughs> one of the things that, that Lane does really well is he's not, I guess, unlike me, he, he's not just looking for uh, the hardest possible portage. He's actually looking for this specific uh, combination of gradient and water that's going to make for a classic river. He's a guy who lives on the banks of the Little White River in the gorge. And, um, and so that's what he really identifies. And that being said, he's not picking easy rivers. It's not what I mean to say, but he is actually in search of a river that's going to be ultimately extremely paddable, but at that sort of edge, that limit of runnability and, but, you know, he's a guy, he's, he's not, I guess, not as much of a glutton for punishment as I am. But that being said, he's got a sense of adventure. And um, yeah, I guess in 2018, we went after a few rivers, um, the first of which turned into maybe one of the most epic sort of walled in hair-raising afternoons of my life when we got boxed into a river in southern Colombia and uh, in a downpour with no real option other than to just fire into the unknown. And so <laughs> we pretty quickly left that river and um, went after what he said was going to be the principal goal of the expedition, which was this Rio Guayas that was going to take us a week. Um, it had a really interesting access point where you drove out of the central valley of Colombia and on to that Andean front that leads into the Amazon basin. And then from there, we were going to float down some 50 or 60 miles, which for first descents, that's a pretty long, significant first descent and take our chances. But um, as is the case for many expeditions and, and, a lot of exploration. Uh, oftentimes, you, you that first attempt on a river is is going to be a learning experience where you you're not necessarily there at the right time of year. You don't necessarily get the right weather. You don't have all the logistics lined up. You're not you haven't introduced yourself to the community yet. So there's a learning process there. And um, after three days on the river. Uh, the river was at what we thought was, again, a really high level. And having had the experience a few weeks earlier of basically feeling like we just played a game of uh, Russian roulette, we just very got very lucky to escape. We 
decided to hike out. And, uh, but we knew and we felt on this particular river, having spent two days in there and seeing this river mature from where we put on it as a small creek to what was at that time about six or 7,000 CFS, that this was an amazing opportunity to make an exploration of a river and, and not just like a steep creek or something, but actually a big river. And so we had a lot of desire to come back. And then last year, uh, about a year ago right now, we'd be in the river trying our, trying our luck at the Rio Guayas. Still um, not 100% sure what was downstream, but with what we thought was good weather, we had about half the flow this time around. We had 2,500 to 3,000 CFS. And um, there was also, it was also unclear if the security situation was entirely settled, but we felt like we had done enough due diligence. We had um, in uh, being helped by, by Jules as well. Um, we had done enough research we felt to, to basically take that risk and go down into this river corridor where, you know, it's totally roadless. You can't call some community and see what's happening in there. At some point you just kind of have to um, decide if, if, if the risk is, is, you know, if you've mitigated the risk enough. And so we went in there and yeah, for five days we saw one of the best finest examples of whitewater that I've ever seen anywhere in the world. I put it on the level of, because uh, because as we got downstream, the river just increased in size, and the and the rapids were hemmed in by bedrock walls, but there was enough room to move around, so it didn't feel claustrophobic or too dangerous. Um, but that being said, the main one of the main dangers in Colombia, in Ecuador, in the equatorial parts, in the tropics, boating almost anywhere in the tropics, especially in South America, is flash floods. You can get this sort of torrential rainfall that um, can literally take you by surprise because it doesn't necessarily have to be raining on top of you, but the river can rise so quickly from a rainstorm, say, somewhere upstream. And that happened to us, and luckily it didn't get high enough. But we had, we had literally put ourselves and put our hammocks about 25 feet above the level of a, of a wide river, like a a big river that at that point was now 3,500, 4,000 CFS. And when we woke up in the morning, the river was within three feet of where we were actually wow. hanging our hammocks in the trees. And so um, in the movie, that becomes sort of one of the, one of, one of the most uh, hair-raising points for us. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, we, we were far, far enough downstream to where it was going to be a real mission to try to hike out. We were going to be basically putting ourselves up onto the canyon, out into places where we didn't necessarily want to test our luck with communities that might be out there that might not be as uh, receptive to our showing up out of nowhere as you know, what we really wanted to do was stay in the river corridor, move quickly and sort of silently downstream, see the river, and then, you know, start to learn the place before we just marched out into the middle of nowhere carrying our kayaks. Right. Um, but over the course of those first 
few hours after we woke up, the river dropped dramatically. I've never seen anything like it. You know, the river was at a point where there's no way I would have touched it to dropping, let's say seven feet in three hours. It was insane. That's wild. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's still uh, probably double the flow that we had the previous day, which wasn't ideal for me, but, uh, you know, when you have Lane on the crew and you have Rafa in the crew and you have, you know, you have a lot of confidence in each one of those members to, to not make any mistakes and to stay in your kayak and, uh, you know, portage where you need to portage. We got in the river and, uh, and had a good time of it. And, um, yeah, I guess that was, that was just the start of, um, reminding us that, yeah, even though we had the perfect flow when we put on, and even though, you know, we've, we had some good reports about the safety downstream, like this thing is going to keep us on our toes through the very end. And, uh, it turned out to be the case. And, um, yeah, we ended up at the very end of the mission. I guess I, I shouldn't give too much of the movie away, but, um, we don't make it out scot-free. Um, we, we end up in the hands of a community that was not anticipating our arrival, that saw us from a ridgetop. And from there, um, the mission becomes one of communication and discussion and um, basically negotiation of getting, getting ourselves out of the Rio Guayas. Um, but you know, in between that hopeful put in and this crazy takeout where <laughs> we've basically been detained by um, a group of, of indigenous people, we see this river that I would put on the same level as uh, a stikin or, you know, it's, it's hard to even, maybe even a South salmon here in the United States or some of those amazing rivers in India, a big river, because we were running it when we first put on at what appeared to be a very low flow. And when it spiked on us the next day, it easily handled double the flow. And so, I mean, you're thinking about a river that has a year, year round season where, where we see with other rivers that when they get opened up and when, you know, um, when the really the best paddlers in our sport, like yourself, like Dane, like all these folks, when they get there, you know, they're able to turn up the flow. And so that was my idea of this Rio Guayas is, wow, what would it be like to just, you know, be able to open up this river to the world of kayakers to see what kind of amazing flows and, you know, amazing aerial tricks and all this, this new school mentality would do to a river like this, all of a sudden you'd have maybe even like a, a hard style food of foo in the middle of beautiful, beautiful Columbia. Like it's, it's really exciting. And that's, yeah, that's one of the neat parts about boating with Lane is we're not just doing first descents. That'll never be second descended. It's you're actually going after rivers that are pretty viable to the whole community. That's amazing. And I mean, you, you've definitely done that a fair amount in the past, like the, the Rio Alsaseca trip that we were on. I remember at the time, 
we were thinking like, oh, this is such an amazing river. Like this will be a classic for sure. And, and, you know, 10 years later, it's one of the, you know, major winter destinations for at least North American paddlers, but world paddlers, like paddlers from all over, uh, and abroad and stuff like that. So it's cool for sure to go to these places and, and do first ascents knowing that, that might become like the next big classic run or or like big destination and and it sounds like the the um Rio Guaris could have been that or or is that um now being that we don't want to give too much away with the movie and and stuff like that and I highly encourage everybody to go watch it um but you you do kind of get held captive a little bit or or at least held um I don't know if you, if you say against your will, but like held when you're not expecting it, maybe. I don't I don't know how you yeah. gently want to put it, but um, but this was also the the second time, from my understanding, that you you've been held in Colombia. Is that is it just kind of the you know the political unrest there? What is it specifically about you know Colombia where? you're more likely, I guess, to, to be taken, I don't know if hostage is the right terminology or just kind of, uh, held captive until they kind of figure out what, what you're doing there on the river. Yeah. Well, just to backtrack one second, just to, just to be clear and fair, I believe, you know, the Alsa Seca was a river that had been, had a lot of history even before we showed up with right, uh, right. Tom McEwen and whatnot and some of those like very first paddlers in Mexico. And um, one of, one of the couple sections, I think there were a couple sections that we may have been the first to open up, but one of them has never been done again. So <laughs> you're, you're right. And I've actually been asked <laughs> several times to go back in there and, and regularly I'm like, nah, no, nah, dude, I've been in there and I don't want to go back. Um, yeah, I know. So I haven't, you haven't seen me back there either. <laughs> There's definitely that aspect of running first ascents too, is you, you never know what you're going to get. And, and sometimes it's pure gold and other times you never want to go back. Um, or, or you're <laughs> yeah. lucky to escape in the first place. But You know, I, Mexico and, and Colombia have, have a lot in common in terms of um, the the beauty of the rivers, you know, and this sense, at least for from a kayaker's perspective, of um, of opportunity and exploration, and like a wild west of kayaking, and certainly places that are like you know, when you go down into Chiapas, or when you go over like you guys, when you guys went over to Michoacan or even up north where we were in Durango, like it's just as you have to be just as much, um, just as sensitive to what's going on around you as you do in any part of Colombia. Um, and, and a lot of the, these problems have to do with, um, with our war on drugs, you know, I don't want to be political about it, but them south of the border having a commodity that is greatly desired north of the border, but yet it's deemed illegal um, has created a situation where there is, you know, this struggle for power and you have 
what are called narcos and you have, um, but you, you also have political strife between the haves and the have nots. I mean, these are places as you, you and I are both who, as all kayakers are become so aware when they traveled to developing countries like Mexico and like Colombia, that there is a huge chasm between the haves and the have nots and between uh, subsistence level farmer and people that are just as rich as we have in the United States, if even, you know, more rich. And so I think that, I guess I'm tiptoeing around the fact of saying that, um, that it is, a, it is a totally different situation when say we go and run uh, the Chattooga or, you know, the North Feather or this, you know, even like something wilderness like the South Salmon, we've a basic, we basically in this country, we've set up a national park or a wilderness area, a regulated area where you're pretty safe, you know? Um, whereas out there, these are places that are still politically unsettled. Um, you have, again, you have, um, you have a product that's been deemed illegal by one segment of society and that's trying to be controlled. And it's just a huge amount of history that you, you, that I try to be, um, very sensitive to. And so being, detained in Colombia a couple of those times in both cases was absolutely my fault. I think that any normal tourist that goes to enjoy Colombia is not going to have any issue um, getting detained or running into the FARC or anything like this, unless they absolutely choose to go to an area where they know that there's a risk of, of that happening. You know, that being said, um, I, certainly I think that the most dangerous parts of, of any kayaking trip, whether you're in the United States or abroad is traveling through the cities, you know, in terms of getting robbed or getting in a traffic accident, something like that. Um, but by and large, my experience, whether in Colombia or, you know, India, um, Asia, any, across the, across the globe, any of the six continents where I've traveled is that these small communities, um, the rural communities are the places where I find like those most treasured and most real experiences with the people. And even in the case of these two detainments that I've been a part of in Colombia, it's been just jaw dropping how well they treated us. Even with the FARC, when that was a situation where that particular group was, was very much armed, has um, a history that includes human rights abuses. Um, but we were lucky in that they treated us very well with the utmost respect. They fed us while we, we were there. I mean, we were, we were treated very much like guests and not at all like people that were actually being kidnapped, even though technically that's what you could call it. Um, and it was even more so in this particular case in the Guayas, 
in that this indigenous community was literally trying to stand up for itself and their fear in us showing up out of nowhere was that we were a part of um, a push to actually dam this Rio Guayas and that we were showing up with our instruments and with our cameras and with our GPSs to make some measurements and put, you know, some final details in place to dam their river. And so they, as an indigenous community along the banks of the river, they were just saying, wait a minute, you know, you've got to come up here with us. We want to find out who you are. And we don't want, you know, we don't want our river dammed. We don't want people just coming, coming in as a free for all and doing whatever they want. Cause certainly it's happened in other places, whether it's big mines, big dams. Um, and so with the Guayas, maybe unlike previous uh, kayak movies that I've done, where certainly we've talked about the dam, the, the issue of large scale hydroelectrics, you know, we've, we've spoken a little bit about water quality, that sort of thing. This one was specifically makes a turn to the issue surrounding our, our mission becomes one of, will this river exist for the next group of kayakers? Like, you know, that was the thing is that we found this river that was so perfect for whitewater kayaking. And all of a sudden we're thinking, gosh, is it even going to exist in five years? Wow. And so our time spent with, with that group and their, them detaining us really allowed us to stop and pause and ponder, you know, what it was to, for them to live along the banks of this river, what sort of sovereign right they actually had and potentially what we could do to try to spread the word about the river. That's amazing. And it really goes on to a whole different, you know, subject where like what you're talking about with, with dams coming in and essentially uprooting entire communities. And we've seen this, you know, around the world in, in a lot of different areas in a lot of different countries, um, Africa and, and the white Nile, uh, is the first one that pops to mind for me, but where it really comes to the fact of, I mean, if you're taking away their entire community history, livelihood, everything, who is it to, you know, have that right to come in and put the dam in? And so therefore, is it not their right to at least question you when, when they see you coming through and they're like, whoa, 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 maybe you should come with us for a second. And we've got a couple questions to ask, like, what are you doing here with these, you know, instruments and cameras and all this kind of stuff? And so, you know, maybe them just asking you to come and questioning you and then figuring it all out and, and being, you know, civil and nice about it, feeding you guys, taking care of you technically might be considered, you know, being held hostage or whatever, but at the same point, maybe it's them just doing their due diligence and making sure that their livelihood can, can stay, you know, afloat for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was a big learning experience in 2016 when we got held by the FARC and just afterwards trying to communicate what had happened and what had gone down and, and throwing out the word hostage and, and that sort of thing. It's just such a loaded term, um, you know, especially when you think about what has happened to, to some hostages in, you know, in, in the context of that word, 
whether it was a political situation or whether it was a money situation. Like it's just, it doesn't seem fair to use that word for, um, you know, the four of us getting fed, getting taken care of, never being menaced. And then also using that same word for someone who's tied to a tree with a chain, you know? Right. So I think that that, that was something that certainly Jules wanted to be very careful about in the Epipores thing and something that he felt that some of the initial reports got wrong and that they just wanted to grab on to, you know, a couple four foreigners, you know, taken captive or whatever. Like he was, he, him as someone who lives in Colombia and who loves Colombia and who wants to promote certainly river tourism, river activism in Colombia is, is extremely sensitive to that. So that was an, a learning experience. And so by the time we showed up on the Guayas, we had that. I had that in the back of my mind. Certainly Lane knew all about that trip. Um, and certainly Rafa has spent so much time in Chiapas working closely and trying to communicate clearly with the, with the Zapatista people that like he, for, for him to be there with us as a native Spanish speaker, as someone who spent so much time in Chiapas with the Zapatistas was just gold. Like he never, obviously he never sweat. He never like, you know, never got frustrated. Like what he was just so much more calm and maybe even either Lane or myself that it was, he was just like our centering, um, the person that we all sort of rallied around and not only us, but I felt like the community there was just so attracted to his, his bright, positive light, his communicative personality, his good humor. And that made a huge difference. That's amazing. And so we just immediately followed his lead in that way. And, and it did become an experience where like, I remember, um, most if not all the people in that community so fondly and you know i'd love to be able to go back and because the the one thing that did happen is we were we were forced to um or we were given no option to go downstream and so um, they accompanied accompanied us to the nearest village that was basically our takeout and so we missed probably a half dozen of what would have been the biggest rapids on the river like there's if the if any of the folks have seen the latest edition of kayak sessions where there's the maybe the biggest rapid in the uh, in the photo essay is that first that very first photo what we anticipated from the the satellite imagery is that there was going to be six more of those right to the takeout so that was that was a little bit bittersweet but um but the opportunity for communication and the lead of Rafa and the, um, the guiding of Lane to this place and all of us just sort of as a group being open to the experience, um, but also wanting to, to clearly communicate and, and, um, and feel like we wanted to clearly communicate with them so as to not be taken advantage of. Like we, we wanted to make it very clear to them that we're not, you know, we're not millionaires. We're not, you know, we're not trying to take advantage of their community. But at the end of the day, I did have my, my camera there. I did felt, feel like this was, 
um, an experience that I, that I definitely wanted to retell that I definitely, I, I had already envisioned making a, a film about it. And so there was a trade for, you know, them essentially giving us their blessing to, to make the film, giving us our, our footage because they had taken all of our electronic equipment with the fears that we were going to use it for nefarious purposes. And so we did make a trade and um, we, we did pay to get our footage back. And at the end of the day, we really felt like we, we had made a payment to, to support that community. And in that, you know, it wasn't something that we had anticipate going down there and spending that money to, you know, on the river. It usually is kayakers. We're sort of the dirt bag mentality. We, I mean, the three of us, we rode on a bus from Bogota. We, we spent $15 to get to the, to the trailhead. Then we spent another, you know, 20, you know, we were, we were doing it just in the, in the classic dirtbag kayakers way. I mean, that's how we survive. Yeah. And, uh, but all that said, and the, with the initial frustration of being felt like maybe we were being extorted for money, um, you know, after it all came out and after we were exc- uh, escorted down to the village and after we had actually interviews and had a whole meeting with, with the larger town, with members of the police and members of the military, including this indigenous guard. Um, we felt like these people were one of the best hopes to actually protect a river like this. People who live there, people who are there every day, uh, people who have a vested interest in, you know, keeping, keeping the development that would basically end their way of life out of there. So, so with all of that said, I'm, very much would like to go back and to to show up once again you know maybe this time from the bottom ask permission to finish the river but more importantly just to see see what's going on see how they're doing because there's certainly in a in a very tough situation in terms of what can they actually do yeah you know they they certainly had plenty of luck detaining you know, three kayakers, but when it comes to actually standing up against the huge money that is this multinational that wants to dam the river, that's a whole different situation. Right. Right. So I think that all the support that I could possibly muster that, you know, Jules, luckily Jules is there and he's working with um, an academic out of the university of Florencia and Florencia is the capital of this state where the river exists called Caqueta. And so they're standing up, they're looking at really putting in place an infrastructure that could, that could help to litigate and to could help to put up legal roadblocks to just the damming of these rivers. Because one um, important aspect that Jules just pointed out after the fact is that the entirety of the Colombian Amazon is still undammed, which is different than any of the other major Amazonian countries, all the Peru, Ecuador, um, Bolivia, Brazil, Venezuela, maybe not Venezuela, but Colombia is one of the last countries to not have any dams on any of their tributaries to the Amazon. So it's one of those places where it feels like if there were, you know, if there were an opportunity, it would be there 
to stand up for. So, I mean, that's, I guess it just kind of comes around to what I feel like has been transitioning in my mind in terms of thinking about these rivers and that, you know, I, I was never, I didn't enter the sport as uh, a conservationist or an environmentalist. You know, I grew up in the suburbs of, of Greeley, Colorado in a really conservative household. Um, and, um, but man, I mean, having now kayaked for 20 years and seeing, you know, I, I was just thinking about this Rio, this river called the Kafui, just north of the Zambezi. That was this amazing river that we only scratched the surface on that I think Fisher and Lindgren had opened up a few years prior. I went to with Chris Corbulic and Pedro Oliva and just like next level sort of rapids that you would love to see. Uh, it was like, I think it was like a three and a half hour drive from the Zambezi. That whole system is, is now dammed and diverted. Um, and just to see how quickly that can happen where like literally I was, I felt like I was there. It was, what was it? 2012, 2011, 2012. And then next thing I know, I look back a few, five, six years later and it's gone. It's crazy how, how essentially pieces of nature, like a river, like it's such a, a, I think of it as almost like a concrete piece of nature. Like this is a thing that has existed for, you know, who knows how many years, centuries or whatever. And, and all of a sudden it's just gone. And everything that, that kind of feeds off of it is also gone. Um, you also, you, you mentioned the fact that you really want to go back to the, the Rio Guayas as well. What do you feel are your biggest learning lessons from this trip? If you were to go back? Yeah, well, I think, <laughs> Unfortunately, because I used to operate under the pretense of, of, you know, it's always better to beg for forgiveness and ask for permission. But that mentality definitely changed quite a bit after Chris and I went to Myanmar and just realizing that, like, had we had followed through with, with our backup plan to just go for it, we probably would have gotten some local people in huge, huge amounts of trouble. Um, and then just seeing how, how much the situation changed on the Guayas with these few days of direct communication with the people, I can't help but think that, you know, maybe we could have had it all arranged and had all that communication already in place prior to. So I think that, um, as much as I just want to go and jump in the river and just say the hell with it, you know, and feel like, you know, here in the United States, water, these waterways are public and we have, um, you know, we have this law to fall back on, although it doesn't necessarily play out like that in person. Like, um, they, I, I guess that's where my mentality has come from is that we can, you know, the waterways are public and that they should be free and that like kayaking is this ultimate expression of freedom. That said, um, the, the relationships that you do develop along the way and, and having permission and um, going in with the intent of 
not only having an experience for yourself and not only trying to share your experience with others, but being able to actually perpetuate the experience or open the experience up to others who might want to come. That's all part and parcel to leaving as good and as lasting of an impression as possible. I was going to say that's amazing because I've, I've also, similar to you, I have regularly lived in this, you know, with this mentality of like, beg for forgiveness instead of ask for permission in, in a lot of different ways. And, and I've also had that come back and, you know, bite me a little bit, but maybe there really is something to it where we're just opening up more lines of communication really could be the answer. Um, yeah. Kind of like what you're saying, or maybe in this particular situation where if those lines of communication were opened up now, who knows, maybe they would have denied access, you know, from the get go, but at the same point, maybe they would have, you know, given you their blessing or if you would have gone to them and, and had the approach of, Hey, we want to come and make a video about your river and why it shouldn't be damned. Then maybe you're way more likely to get the blessing and, 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 and help, uh, needed versus, you know, them having to, to take you off the river, question you, and then, and then deny access for the, for the rest of it, which it sounds like was the, the whole point of going there in the first place. We're like, oh, we want to get to these, like, you know, six big rapids. And, and unfortunately, you didn't even get to, to run essentially what you were hoping and, and looking for the whole time. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was very, very eye opening. And just the whole thing, as, as you know, I mean, it's one of the, it's one of the great joys of, of explore, expedition, exploration, uh, exploratory kayaking, which isn't always a first descent. It can literally just be your like personal first descent, yeah. which I think is great too. Um, but it's that the river almost never, the river almost always surprises you. Right. And, yeah. and even having seen the satellite imagery, pretty good satellite imagery, like it didn't really dawn on us that how the rapids were going to build like that to the very end. We didn't have that idea in our minds. Like we couldn't put all the, the, pu the puzzle pieces together of the bedrock, of the increased water flow, of the gradient, of the more pool drop nature into the puzzle to actually know that had we, like my thought would have been that the, most of the amazing stuff in the river was going to be much further upstream and there was cool stuff up there, but it's just like, yeah, it, there is a part of it where I still tend to think that, that at the end of the day, you know, there, there are good risks to be taken. And then there are some that you didn't have to take. And maybe if we would have done a little bit more due diligence made more contacts, um, just done a little bit more to sort of satisfy the question of whether it was safe enough or not to go downstream. We would have, we would have found out a little bit more. Right. Um, and, and I think that that comes to the fact that you are this, um, essentially like eternal optimist almost. And, <laughs> and actually, um, Chris Korbulik, your longtime, uh, paddling partner, expedition, you know, partner as well. 
made a short film about you, which I highly recommend everybody should watch. And I'll, I'll put a link to the show notes. But um, in that film, you say that you're, you're an, you know, an optimist that borders on being unrealistic. And, and you mentioned about how you need to be lucky in the sport. Um, so ob- obviously, you know, the eternal optimism has pushed you to attempt and do so many things that maybe you wouldn't otherwise attempt um, or, or just like go into these places with the idea that everything's going to just work out, you know, in this perfect scenario. Um, but maybe, maybe there is more that needs to go into it beyond just, you know, optimism and, and maybe, um, you know, obviously having luck on your hand is, is one thing, but putting in that due diligence, putting in, in the effort on the, you know, beforehand might also just be the key to success in, in the long run too. But how much do you think, how much luck do you put into, you know, everything that you've done? Cause you like, there's so many things that you've done and so many first descents and so many waterfalls. Um, where do you feel like luck comes into play versus kind of putting in that, that hard work and putting in the grit, um, beforehand? Um, man, I mean, I can't, you know, luck is such a weird term, I guess, you know, luck kind of sounds like the good end of chance. And so, um, yeah, I think I've been really lucky. You know, I just had my first major paddling injury just this spring after like a long time paddling, you know, other than some cracked ribs and some, some things that seem to be able to resolve themselves within a month or two. This was kind of my first like six month injury and the whole thing. And it, the way that it happened definitely opened my eyes to the fact that, yeah, I've definitely, (laughs) I think I've definitely had some good luck along the way. Um, But, um, but yeah, I mean, I guess, in, I feel like hopefully I've, I've increased my chances for, for luck over the years just with some good decision-making. I've certainly made some questionable decisions in terms of, of individual rapids, but I think by and large I've been somewhat conservative um, in, in certain circumstances. And, um, and then also I've, I have really been into the – the planning and the envisioning part of, of these expeditions in terms of trying to really figure out and make myself available for, for exploring these rivers at the right flow, which I think is, I mean, 75% of it is just being there at the right time. I mean, there's just so many examples of rivers that or several examples of rivers that we've been the first to do that we simply just were able to identify the right time of year to go there and not show up during essentially too high water. Yeah. Um, And um, so, but that being said, yeah, I mean, you still need, you still need a good amount of luck, Um, but it's hard to, it's hard to really say, but, and, it, and it, you still want to have a good amount of optimism because inevitably the most challenging objectives and the biggest rivers, the, 
the the hardest rivers left to explore the vast majority of people are going to be telling you that it's too dangerous and it's not possible and it's not just going to it's not just going to be the villagers yeah that live along the banks of the river it's going to be the 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 people that you look up to and the people that you like a lot of you wants to listen to and you need to listen to that but at the same time um i I almost think that goes beyond just rivers and, and paddling too. like having optimism and, and I mean, is obviously in my opinion, just a a great thing to have because you are going to have those people that tell you that you can't do it and it can't be done and it'll never work. Whether it's a first descent river or whether it's, you know, you trying to become a professional athlete or whether you want to take on a new job or, or anything in life. Like there's so many things in life that unless you have that optimistic point of view, people will, will essentially just flood you with, with the nose and the cants and that negativity. And, and I feel like it's good to heed some of that advice for sure and, and listen and try to learn and prepare, um, for those kind of worst case scenarios. But at the same time, without the optimism, you're never going to take the, the attempt in the first place. And, and I would much rather live in a world where, where you go for it and you try it. Um, and hopefully you take some of that, you know, negativity and, and you, you've prepared yourself to, b- before going into plan. it and have a backup plan or whatever it is. Yeah. But I think the optimism is, is kind of, uh, what leads people forward and, and where progression comes from, because without it, we'd probably either just stand still or go backwards. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's a great, a great point is it's it definitely spans all of life and not just, you know, exploratory kayaking. That's for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And another word when, and I was just thinking about it, like a word to describe you that, I think of um, when it comes to a, essentially first descent kayaking in particular, but just kayaking exploratory adventure is um, would be like a obsession. Um, when I think of of like of you and and uh, adventure, like I'm just like man, Ben is just obsession would be the first word that comes to mind in a good way, not in a bad way. But hmm. f- for you, is there like a perfect river? Cause it, you've been for decades now, just been like in this search and it's like, you're always going after something new and always trying to find something else. And whether it's again, a, a, a river, a Canyon, a waterfall, or just like a way to do something where someone has told you, Oh, this can't be done because of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. And you're like, Oh, I'm going to find a way. Like you've got that, like, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's like drive to, to search or just solve problems or what it is, but is like, do you, is there something that you're looking for? Like, is there that perfect river or is it just that you, you have that desire to continue looking for what's next? Well, um, that's a good question. I, I don't know if I can, if I can distill what it is other than that, when I started doing um, the kayaking missions, my first one being to Mexico and subsequent to, to Colombia, inevitably <clears throat> I would get to the end of those missions being more motivated and more inspired to, to go further and to see more 
and um, to push a little further than I was at the beginning of the trip. And I think that that inevitably has snowballed over the years. And so, so knowing that, that, um, that the first, that the part that's the hardest for me is actually just leaving getting, getting in the car, getting on the plane and going and taking the first step and knowing that, that at the end is the, the place where like um, I get the most out of, out of all the, the hard work along the way is yeah. like, that's, I guess it becomes the carrot on the stick, but also it's, it's difficult because it, it can become difficult for me to even come home. Right. And, um, and then switch back into sort of a day to day living, which I think is, is hard for everybody. When you, when you go out to the river and you go out on the weekend and you experience this amazing river and then you, if you have to show back up for work on Monday or, you know, turn back up for, for what your day-to-day life um, there's, there's this switch where all of a sudden you're not just completely focused in the moment. You're not in the flow state that you were before. There's, there's a transition there. Right. But the thing with the rivers is, is that I've found that there's so much work to be done um, from the seat of my computer or from, you know, calling friends and networking or opening up the topo maps that you can continue to sort of pursue that dream. And, you know, certainly for me as an aging athlete now into my early forties, it's become very evident too, that, um, that there's a lot of actual physical training that I need to do as well. And so all of these aspects, all of these elements, I'm, I'm constantly still sort of chasing that golden moment of, you know, full inspiration, full commitment to, um, to something that initially seemed like, you know, maybe it wasn't possible. Like, and so I think that, yeah, there's, there's, there's gotta be some, some ego involved in that, of that being part of my persona and being able to, to overcome, overcome some of these challenges and open up some of these rivers. But I, but I also like to remember of so many of the times when I've had to rely on the people around me, you know, whether it was the people on the Rio Guayas that weren't just saying that they were detaining us because of the dam that they were worried about, but, after they came to know us, they were actually worried about our safety for other groups that might've existed a long way. Who knows? They might've saved us from, from this thing that we didn't even know about. <clears throat> and I can certainly say the same thing for uh, so many of the, the boating partners that I've had over the years, you know, whether, you know, it was Rafa or yourself and, um, just the kind of group enthusiasm and commitment that we had on the Alsaseca back in the day, or, you know, Rafa on this particular trip in making the clear, concise and amicable communication with Aquinas or Lane showing us the, showing me the way to the river and leading so many of the big rapids along the way. Like, um, and so that like camaraderie and that team aspect of the sport where like, you know, I, I know that, that I have some component 
uh, motivation and enthusiasm and optimism, if you will, to do these things. But I also um, know and am very well aware that so many of these missions, whether it was, you know, the locked in mission on the Berryman with the help of Benny Marr and specifically Brian Smith to help just bring that totally wild far out dream to reality or the marble fork with Forrest Noble and Jared Johnson and, and them having the climbing savvy to open that up um, or, you know, having uh, just so many teammates over the years, like, you know, Jesse Rice, certainly joining up with Jules Domine, just all of these people that bring so many different talents to bear on these projects. Um, that's, that's the part that's like so rewarding. And to know that each one of these people is going through their own progression of staying in top physical condition in order to hike across the mountain range, you know, um, certainly, yeah, I mean, in mentioning all these people, of course, you know, Chris Korbulik and, and his mentality without him being in the chopper in scouting the Berryman that I really feel like without him and his enthusiasm and his commitment to that river, that river wouldn't have happened or Pedro Oliva taking us there in the first place and being committed to exploring and taking us to the most far out and wild places that we had ever seen, whether it was there in PNG or up in Greenland, like that's a, that's a very rewarding experience. And that's something that I feel like is important for me to continue to, to remember and continue to be cognizant of and continue to maintain these relationships because yeah, I, I don't even come close to doing these things on my own. That's amazing. Um, it, it almost sounds like, um, like this combination, this, this kind of perfect meld of like chasing the flow state, the adventure, the camaraderie and teamwork, um, all kind of like put together that, that builds up these like perfect trips and perfect opportunities. Um, or at least maybe the most memorable ones or the ones that are the most successful for sure. And with all that you've done, I mean, you were just mentioning so many different trips, so many successful first descents and, and uh, incredible, you know, rivers and canyons and stuff. What does the next one, three, five years look like for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I hate to say it's like day by day at this point, but it, it kind of is. I think a lot of us, especially that had, <laughs> made our lives and our passions around exploration or have been to some extent sitting on our hands, you know, waiting for the right time to, to potentially go back out. Right. To try not to lose the lessons of these day and times that we're living through in this COVID pandemic. And yeah, you know, the, the thought that I'm sure has all has crossed all of our minds that through all of this, international travel have we exacerbated you know climate change right um and, but but also probably all of us becoming so aware that like how much symbiosis and how much 
hopefully mutual benefit that we've developed with a lot of these communities. Um, we've certainly seen um, kayaking communities grow up and start to flourish all over the world, which is so incredible. And to think that we would just turn that off um, seems equally dismal to, you know, the thought of putting too much carbon in the atmosphere with, um, with international travel. But all of that is to say that I feel like, yeah, right now I'm just right on the verge of, of lining up uh, another trip, um, trying to explore another river, trying to get to know another, another community, another kayaking community that I haven't known before in, in Ecuador. Um, you know, being aware Ecuador is, has got to be like one of the most well-known, somewhat well-trodden destination for international kayakers. Um, and I think that, that perception, my perception of that in and of itself kind of kept me from putting that on, on my radar as a, as a, as a place that I needed to go. But then as, you know, Ecuador has been one of the countries that I think, I think they've done a good job opening their doors in um, the COVID testing requirements. Um, and I think that, that, uh, you know, certainly they've been one of the, one of the first countries to really say, you know, let's have, let's have a kayaking season that put it on my radar and then actually taking a real solid look at the, at the country and the rivers there. Um, and certainly hearing a lot about the rivers through, through Todd Wells, through a Pereira, through small world adventures. Um, yeah, I thinking about, uh, Ecuador in terms of a place that has been done and explored is probably the opposite of the way that we should think about Ecuador we should more think about it in terms of a place that probably has some of the biggest first descents left on earth and wow. a place that needs our attention as, and focus as much as anywhere else on earth in terms of the looming threat of large scale hydroelectric development and these pretty damaging mining activities that seem to be popping up all over the country. So I'm, I'm very much uh, enthusiastic and motivated about going there and uh yeah meeting meeting the kayakers that live there and um possibly exploring a river awesome well i definitely wish you uh the best with that as i know uh it'll be an adventure at at you know at minimum and and i hope you guys find what you're looking for and and probably help bring awareness to some of the things that i'm I'm sure you guys will either uncover or have realized. And yeah, I look forward to seeing kind of what happens when you, when you go down that journey. But Ben, thank you um, for joining me so much. Before we leave off, I want, to, I want to take you to the next section of our show that I call the fire round. And I'm just going to um, just fire a couple quick questions at you. Um, do you have a favorite quote that you live by? <laughs> Do I have a favorite quote that I live by? Oh man, you're catching me off guard. <clears throat> um, friend of the fearless. I think my, my good friend, Devin Knight, his family supported my kayaking career for probably the first decade with, uh, with good, solid paying construction work. Um, you know, and I think, I 
think he was the one who said, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not fearless myself, but I'd like to think that my friends are fearless. That's awesome. I love that. Um, do you have a favorite book or uh, a current book that you're reading or, or anything that inspires you along the way? I've been reading, um, just right now I'm reading Barry Lopez's Horizon. And I think it's very inspirational, very eye-opening, uh, very educational in terms of viewing our planet in uh, a context of um, a historical context. Awesome. But I very much recommend it. I'll have to check that one out. Um, ben, if you could go back in time to any time of your life and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? <laughs> Oh man. Okay. Yes. I'd like to go back to myself in, uh, 2009 Chico, California and tell myself to buy a house. That would have been, that would have been a really good thing to do. Yeah. That the yeah. housing market has, has exploded for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of a shitty thing to tell myself, but it sure would have been nice. There's a nice little house across the street from my best friends, the Robertsons. And, uh, that would have been a nice little investment. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, for some reason my uh, my attributes don't lie in the investment realm. I'd probably be a much more success. Well, I mean, it's debatable. Would I be a more successful kayaker or a less successful kayaker? I guess these are all expenditures of time. So, well, and it all just depends on what you consider investments. If you're talking financial investments, maybe. But if you're talking about investments of uh, experience, I mean, I don't know almost anybody who has even close to the list of experiences, uh, that you have. Um, so yeah, it, it it all just kind of depends on that view of life and, and view of, of, you know, where you're putting your investments. Um, Ben, if you were to leave this earth today and everything that you've done, all the films that you've made, all the, the first ascents that you've done, um, if it was all gone, everything was erased and you were, only left a piece of paper and a pen and you could leave three truths on it. What would be the three truths that you would leave? <laughs> the cataclysm sentence. <laughs> if I could write one thing down on a piece of paper, I guess, I guess it would be that, um, that there, that there is some sort of intangible benefit in, in risk and danger um, and and I guess inevitably our mortality is is a huge part of that you know and just having having the motivation to live every day to, to its fullest and not you know not taking risks to to be flippant about it or to to disrespect the the um, the love and the care that those who brought us up had for us, but to take it to, to celebrate life. So I would say take risks, live every day to its fullest, celebrate life. I love that. That's amazing. And, and I think you're totally right where I think, I mean, all three of those are, are just three of the most important things. Um, and, and there's, you know, a vast wealth of knowledge in, in such, a short little, you know, quote right there, but, and you can extrapolate that into, into all sorts of different aspects of life for sure. But anyway, 
Ben, thank you so very much for joining me today. This has been amazing. I have, I mean, my brain is just running in all sorts of different directions after our conversation. And I feel like it's always this way when I get to talk with you. Um, if, if any of my viewers or listeners uh, would like to reach out to you, what's the best way for someone to connect with you? Yeah, you know, via Instagram, really, I, uh, sometimes I have some trouble sorting out like the new chats from the old chats, but I, I do try to um, get and communicate with folks. If, you know, you're leaving me a comment on one of my Instagram posts, or you decide to DM me directly, I try to, you know, for anybody who's wanting to have some honest communication, I, I try to be available for that. Awesome. And I'll, I'll have your Instagram in the show notes as well. Um, Ben, I also try to add value to the show, uh, with all my guests on here. So is there anything right now that you're focusing on that either I could help you with, or, um, possibly my listeners or, or viewers could help you with as well? Well, I don't know. I've had this thought and I, I do my very, very best to resist the urge to tell people, um, what they should do because I think that there's so many different ways of going about life, you know, and, or let alone politics. Um, but I do think that there could be, we could do a better job as kayakers sort of consolidating our, um, our love for the river and our love for these venues where we practice our sport. And there's so many of us. I think that uh, if taken out of the context of the U S or Canada, or, you know, these little individual kayaking communities were pretty small and maybe somewhat insignificant, but when you take us as a whole across the whole planet, all of these rivers, and, you know, maybe not even limiting ourselves to kayakers, you know, especially if we include the rafters, especially if we include the pack rafters, people who are on the canoes, um, uh, stand-up paddleboard folks. I think we could be so, such a powerful voice and have so much unity. You know, I think about the fact that American whitewater is devised almost of equal parts uh, Republican and Democrat in terms of party affiliation. Yeah. I can't help but think that um, the love for the river sort of transcends whatever fiscal, social beliefs when you just have this, this very organic appreciation for the river. You know, I, I just wonder if, if there's not some way where we can better collect all of our voices if there's not some way where we can all make sure that when we share our individual experiences, because I think that that's a big part of it for a lot of us, not for everybody, you know, there, we all know the soul writers that don't feel the need to, to post on Instagram or to, you know, yell to the outside world that it's their experience. But I think that for those of us that do um, enjoy and 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 endeavor to share our experiences then just to always try to keep in mind um some of the other things that are going on as opposed to 
you know, I think one end of the spectrum is like a, a post that says splish splash, blah, 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 that has no, like, it doesn't have any connection to geography. It doesn't have any connection. It's literally just the feeling of it. And I think that there's a place for that. But I also think that, and it doesn't necessarily have to be in one particular platform in one particular way. But, you know, whether it's joining an organization like American Whitewater, joining International Rivers, um, you know, starting your own nonprofit organization to help protect or help clean up a river, just doing, and this is really just a note to self, is just trying to do a few more things, one thing a week, maybe even one thing a day, one small mention in a post to talk about something outside of ourselves and something that might lend to this community that is certainly one of a kind, right? When yeah. you can go to the other side of the world, go down a river with someone and all of a sudden be best friends. And, you know, in what other way does that honestly happen? So yeah. I think that if, if I were to ask you and ask your listeners one thing, it would be like, just keep that in mind of like, yes our experience on the river our individual experiences on the river are sacred and special but so are the experiences of every single other one of these community members and the community that is going to come into our sport and that if we don't somehow do more to protect these rivers and to hold up the community and this to have a powerful voice um then we'll have rivers like is do you pronounce it the Etz? The Itz? The uh Utz, yeah. We'll have rivers like the Utz in the heart of the European Union, they're gonna get dammed because of what? Right. Um, you know, I in my in my point of view, it's completely flawed to sacrifice a river like that for such a small amount of, of of power so i think that you know being able to gather our voices and speak positively and persuasively with shared real experience and shared real experience to not only the foreigners that appreciate that river but to the with the locals that appreciate those rivers like i think you can do a lot no that's that's so. perfect and and so i i think um, what you're saying essentially is let's all just do our best to, to take part, to unite, to have a voice. And, um, whether if you're already a member of, of American whitewater, let's see how else we can help. Um, and maybe that could be, you know, cleaning up around your river or just do your part in some way. And, and I love that message. And, and I know that I personally, I mean, I live on a road, uh, with a river down by the end of it and, I, I see garbage out there, so maybe today I'm going to go grab a, uh, a garbage bag and just kind of go clean up the road and, and, and river access and stuff like that. And, and I think there's always something that we can all do to, uh, to do our part individually. And, and there's a, you know, a, vast, a vast majority or a, 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 of different ways that, that we can kind of do, do your part and, and what that kind of entails. But let's all try to do something. Um, yeah, yeah. Thanks. And I think it, if nothing else, it just like make you feel better makes me feel better when I do, when I just do one little thing, I'm just like, man, God, it just made all the difference. Yeah. All that, all that crap that was, yeah. But anyways, 
No, that's perfect. Thank you so very much, Ben. I have thoroughly enjoyed getting to talk with you. Um, thank you for sharing all your nuggets of gold and your lessons learned and uh, the adventures along the way. Um, and please, anybody out there, if you guys haven't checked Ben out on Instagram or social media, go check him out. Check out his incredible videos. I mean, he's got such an array of, of amazing videos out there. And I honestly hope that you guys were able to get some, some value out of this show. I know that I certainly did. And I always get value when I get to hang out with Ben and talk with him. And if you did, please, I highly encourage you to, uh, to share this with someone else who you think might need to hear this message, hear this story. Uh, and that could be just simply sharing it with a friend, uh, could be copying the link and throwing it up on your social media. Uh, we would love to just kind of ha- help share this out and, um, and kind of build a bit of a community around the whole thing. So thanks so much, Ben. I'm Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.